I'll be reading it from the book of Nahum, tiny little book, a little bit before Matthew. You can miss it, it's only like two pages long. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Echoshite, the Elkoshite, the Lord's anger against Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, and the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh, and you will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temples of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Uh, reading God's word for us this morning. Uh, so this past week, I, I read an article, uh, and it was about the uh, books of the prophets in the Old Testament, like the one that Jeannie just read for us. Uh, Crossway, uh, who is a Christian organization, um, published a lot of books and commentaries and other things like that. Uh, they surveyed over 6,000 Christians uh, and asked them questions about uh, their Bible reading habits. The results of their survey indicate that more than 40% of Christians struggle to read the prophets, and less than 10% of believers regularly read the prophetic books. Now, this study affirms a struggle that I've heard lots of people uh, express, and one that is also true of me as well, uh, is that we struggle uh, with the prophetic books, um, whether it's Isaiah or other books, Habakkuk, we looked at the book of Malachi last year. Uh, so maybe you're wondering this morning, uh, why are we spending time uh, in the prophetic books as we start out the year? Um, because 
Uh, like I said, <laughs> we struggle uh, to read them. Uh, and just because we struggle to read them doesn't mean that we shouldn't read them. It actually maybe is more of a reason that we should read them. You know, the more time that I spend in the prophetic books, uh, the more I find that I appreciate uh, what I find in them. Now, many of us are familiar with the more popular, maybe the larger prophetic books like Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Uh, But what is a Nahum? (laughs) Who is Nahum? Why are we starting in the book of Nahum? Uh, One reason uh, is that I like to draw our attention uh, to books of the Bible that usually we don't spend time in. Uh, The books that are often overlooked as we're flipping through our Bibles, uh, maybe figuring out what it is that we want to read. Uh, But the second reason uh, is because uh, our starting point uh, for where we're going this year in our sermon series uh, is is here in the book of Nahum. Uh, And so here is, is where we're going this year. This is a little bit of a teaser for you. Uh, is that we are going to spend uh, what I'm calling a a year in exile. And so we've talked about the theme of exile a little bit over the past year. Uh, But what I mean by that is that we'll be spending uh, most of this year talking about the biblical theme of exile. Now, usually when we think about exile, we think about uh, the book of Daniel, Uh, right, and his exile in Babylon. Many of us are familiar with that story. Uh, And we will be spending time this year in the book of Daniel. Uh, But I didn't want to start in the book of Daniel. I wanted to start before the book of Daniel uh, in the minor prophets of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, uh, whose names are very fun to say. (laughs) Um, But Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, and the other minor prophets that come before, uh, provide some of the backstory for the book of Daniel. So uh, these small books will provide us with a little bit of the context of what happened before the book of Daniel uh, took place. Now, after we spend time in the book of Daniel, we'll uh, take a little break of eight weeks over the summer and do a summer series like we did last year. Uh, And then we'll jump to the New Testament and we'll look at uh, what the books of 1 and 2 Peter have to say about what it means to live in exile. Now, uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed this in your life. Uh, But more and more in our society, uh, we as followers of Jesus seem to be living in uh, exile. Our lives as followers of Jesus are starting to look more and more different from the lives of those who are around us. Now, for a few centuries, Christians in the United States, uh, since around 1950, uh, have operated from uh, what many scholars are calling uh, the center of influence. But now it seems that we are being pushed to the outside, to the outskirts, being removed from the center of influence, becoming more of an outside voice. And so really the question, when we think about that idea, is what do we do with that? How do we live as Christians in a rapidly changing world? 
How do we respond to what seems to be cultural exile for followers of Jesus? And is there a physical exile coming for us at some point in the future? I hope not, (laughs) at least to that last one. Um, But all of that uh, we will answer and more this year as we talk about this theme of exile. So let me pray for us, uh, and then we will spend some time in the book of Nahum. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Uh, Just for a new year, we thank you for your word and for uh, these more obscure uh, books of the Bible uh, that are still important. And God, they're still your word. Uh, And we can learn important things about you and about us through them. And so we pray, God, that we would uh, learn about you this morning through it. And so, Father, may you uh, speak through me this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So as Jeannie read for us, we're going to be in the book of Nahum chapter 1. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Uh, Nahum is on uh, page 660 of the church Bibles. Uh, I figured you might need a little bit of assistance (laughs) uh, turning there this morning. Uh, So Nahum chapter 1, I've split up into three parts. If you have uh, a bulletin, you can see an outline there for you. Uh, First, we'll talk about how God's wrath is necessary to his character uh, in verses 1 through 6. Then we'll talk about how God's goodness is necessary to his character in verses 7 through 11. And then we'll talk about how God's wrath and his goodness combine to provide hope in verses 12 through 15. So let's start in that first section this morning and talk about how God's wrath is necessary to his character. Now the book of Nahum opens, like many of the prophetic books do, uh, with a little bit of information about who the prophet is. This prophecy uh, is concerning Nineveh. Uh, And so this prophecy is to the nation of Israel, uh, but it's about someone else. It's about Nineveh, which is a city, Uh, and is the capital city of a nation called Assyria. Now, Assyria was the predecessor to Babylon and the current uh, world power at this period in the Middle East. And God had used Assyria in order to punish Israel uh, for their continued disobedience against him. Assyria was a wicked nation. If you read about them, they did some pretty bad things to people and to the nations that they invaded. Uh, And so, uh, even though they were wicked, God still used them to accomplish his will in the world. Uh, But their actions were still wicked, and so they must be judged for what they have done. Now, this prophecy comes uh, from Nahum, or through Nahum, who is an Elkoshite. Now, uh, we know really nothing about Elkosh, uh, where Nahum uh, was born, uh, but the name Nahum means comfort. Now, you might be wondering, well, what is comforting about parts of this prophecy? It's a little ironic uh, for us to read this. Now, the words that come from Nahum in this first section really are anything but comforting. Nahum uh, begins here by describing God's character, but he starts with an aspect of God's character that isn't warm and fuzzy. He says that God is jealous and avenging, 
that God takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. That he takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Now, this doesn't sound all that great if you're Assyria (laughs) and Nineveh. Now, if you're Israel and you're reading this, well, this seems pretty good. If you're an ancient Israelite living at this time, then God's wrath is actually a good thing for you because God's wrath is not turned against you, but against your enemies. Now, God's wrath here means salvation for Israel, even though in the past, God's wrath had meant exile for Israel. Though God is filled with wrath and he will take vengeance, Nahum reminds us in verse 2 that God is slow to anger. Now, this is a theme that we see often in the Old Testament. It has taken God a long time to get to this point where he has decided to pour out his wrath against Nineveh. He has put up with a whole lot before he has decided to do this. But in his character, God cannot leave the guilty go unpunished. Now, Nahum also reminds us that God is great in his power. Nahum uses this vivid imagery of nature to describe God's power. Like a whirlwind and the storm, the clouds are the dust of his feet. uh, He rebukes the sea and causes droughts. He causes entire regions to wither and causes trees to fade, causes the mountains to quake and the hills to melt away. All of the earth trembles before him. Now God relates, Nahum, Nahum relates God's power to the power of nature because it is difficult for the human mind to truly comprehend or wrap our minds around God's power. Nahum is reaching for something to compare God's power to, and the only thing that he can choose to compare it to is uh, nature. Now, all of these things are powerful and scary. The whole point of what Nahum is saying here is that the whole earth and all who live in it tremble at God's presence. Now, God's power is not just limited to nature and to creation, but yet he has power over them because he created them. Now, sometimes I think that we forget about God's power, either on purpose or just by accident. We forget about how powerful God is. Now, if we are going to believe that God exists, which we do, then why not believe in his power? This is God's main issue with us as people, is that we're always trying to derive power from something that really has no power in it. This is what an idol is, and this is part of God's wrath against Nineveh, is that they have many idols and many other gods that they have tried to put in the place of God. An idol is something that promises to give us something, but in turn gives us nothing. Now, I think this shows up in the most obvious way in our lives, is in our prayer life. Sometimes we pray like this, well, God, if you want to do this thing for me, if that is something that you you could do, then maybe you could do it for me, right? Have you ever prayed (laughs) that prayer? Or worse, we just don't pray because deep down we don't really think that 
God wants to or has the power to answer our prayers. Friends, the God that we serve is not just powerful. He is the most powerful being in the universe. God is power itself, and we need to believe that that is true about him. This is what Nahum reminds us of here in Nahum chapter 1. Now it is with this power that God chooses to carry out his wrath. As powerless as a person feels standing before a hurricane, or before the tallest mountain in the world, or when there's snow falling rapidly outside and we're worried about how we're going to get home, even more than those things, (laughs) uh, that is how a person feels when standing before God. And so uh, this is why Nahum asks those two rhetorical questions that he asks in verse 6. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? The answer to which, Nahum doesn't give us the answer. The answer is no one. And now a whole nation has not only been standing before God in the face of his wrath and his power, but they have been standing against him. They have been actively working against what God has wanted for them. And God's wrath must be satisfied. In his character, he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. See, his anger and his wrath are necessary because they are a means to an end. Because without them, there would be no recourse for any action in the world. No retribution for the wrongs committed by men against each other and against God. No retribution for any nation that rises up to oppress others, to kill others, to try and take the place of God and pour out their wrath against other people. God must take vengeance because he is absolutely just. There's this scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, which looks much like it does outside right now, uh, where the children are sitting in the house of the beavers, if you're familiar with the story. And Lucy, the youngest child, asks about Aslan, who if you're familiar with the story, then you know who Aslan is. He asks, or Lucy asks, is he a safe lion? And the beaver replies, excuse me, safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And that brings us into our next section for this morning. Excuse me. As Nahum goes on to describe the next aspect of God's character, God's goodness. Now, Nahum says it right out God is good. And despite spending an entire section on God's wrath and his judgment, Nahum also doesn't shy away from talking about God's goodness here. For Nahum, it's not like God is half good or partly good, you know, half good and half wrath. God is fully good. And he is good because he is a refuge in times of trouble. When people are facing hard times in their lives, they can find shelter in him. He cares for those who trust in him 
And he moves to provide for their needs, to move them out of those hard times. You see, this is the thing about God's power, is that because he is good, he also uses his power for the good of those who love him. Nahum, he seems to be going back into talking about God's wrath again after he says that God is good. He says, uh, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. Well, this seems like wrath doesn't it? Isn't this section supposed to be about God's goodness? You see, for Nahum, God's wrath can be a source of his goodness. God's main problem with the people of Nineveh is their plotting, he says. Their evil ideas and plans for world domination, enslaving other peoples and raising up their own idols. See, this is what God has an issue with. God hates man's plotting because man is always plotting to make himself God. Why did Adam and Eve fall in the Garden of Eden? What was their temptation? Well, Satan tempted them with the idea that they could become like God and know the difference between good and bad. Why did the people build the Tower of Babel? Well, that passage says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Why did any evil ruler or king or governor or any person of power ever do the evil things that they did? Well, they did it so that they could have power, influence, dominion, All things that we saw in the first section, God already has. They are his. And so man is always plotting against God. By plotting against God, they are trying to become like him. Or even worse, trying to take his place, saying that there is no God. Now God despises plotting because it is usually done in secret, where people think that God doesn't know that it's going on. And he despises plotting because usually it is done with the harm of other people in mind. Always involves the going against of what God has planned and commanded his people to do. So part of God's goodness is the protection of his people. And he is protecting them from trying to become like him. Not because God is selfish and wants uh, to be the top dog in the universe and he's always trying to keep people down from becoming like him. Uh, But God is trying to protect his people in this way because he knows that if they try and become like him, it will destroy them. See, what happened in the Garden of Eden when they ate the fruit, right? They knew good and bad. They fell into the temptation. They became like God, and it destroyed them. Not immediately, but the perfect harmony that they had with God was ruined. They realized that they were naked. They became self-conscious. And through them, sin had entered into the world. And look at all the havoc that that has caused that we still see in our world today. See, the thing that God wants us to understand is that he has already made us like him. 
He has made us in his image. See, this is what it means for God to be good. He's already given us all the power and all of the love that we could ever need. But instead, and here is really the root of all sin, is that we try and get power and love for ourselves. We try and be self-sufficient. right? We try and push God out of the picture as much as we can. And when we do that, things usually end up very, very bad for us. See, the thing that God's goodness means for us is that we need to trust that he has given us the power in him and stop trying to grab it for ourselves. But God still offers his goodness to us, right? Even if things have gone very, very bad for us. Even if his wrath may be up against us. He still offers his goodness if we choose to humble ourselves and to accept it. So in this last section, the person who is speaking shifts. Right? We no longer have Nahum's voice, but we have God's voice spoken through the prophet Nahum. And here is what God says through Nahum to Israel. He gives them a message of hope. Though Assyria has allies and has numbers and has great military strength, none of that can stand a chance against the power of God. God has used Assyria to afflict Israel, but that will not be the case any longer. God will free them from their bondage to Assyria, and their chains will be broken. But for Nineveh, God's promise is grim. No descendants will bear their name. And that one came true. Where is the nation of Assyria today? Right? God will purify them from their idols and their gods, those that they have worshipped over him. And so to Israel, they are to return to what they were supposed to be doing in the first place. They are to return to being a nation who represented the Lord their God in all of the world. They can return to their festivals and to their covenants and to their restored relationship with God. And here's God's last promise to them. No more will the wicked invade you. It's a message of hope. You see, this is the resolution to the story between Israel and Assyria prophesied here. Uh, The only way that this resolution can be brought about is this. If God's character includes both his wrath and his goodness simultaneously. See, only can Assyria be punished for their wrongdoing if God has wrath. And only can Israel be restored to their true purpose if God is good. Those two things are necessary, and they combine to provide justice, God's justice, in our world. You see, this hope that we receive in this last section is impossible without those two things. If God only had wrath and not goodness, then there would only be destruction from him without any hope of restoration in our world. Right? The world would just be a constant barrage of God pouring out his wrath on his people. But we know that that's not the reality of our world, right? Yes, bad things happen 
in our world, but good things happen as well. But if God only had goodness and not wrath, then there would only be restoration without destruction. I'll pause. (laughs) That doesn't sound too good. What does that say? It's snowing. Does anyone know if it's supposed to stop? Anytime soon? It is. Snow showers. Okay. So this isn't like a blizzard rolling in that, okay. All right. Okay. So I'll keep going and hopefully I'll, when I'm done preaching, it'll be clear. Yeah. Okay. Great. Just wanted to make sure that we were all safe. Um, Anyways, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll reread that point. Uh, but if God only had goodness and not wrath, then there would only be dis- restoration without destruction. Now, you, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? That sounds pretty good, right? Don't we want restoration without destruction? Well, the problem with that is that without God's wrath, wrongdoing never goes unpunished or never gets punished, excuse me. Without God's wrath, he is powerless to act against those who have wronged him or others. And so when a tyrannical world power rises up, there is no hope in God stopping them if God does not have wrath and is not just. See, the analogy that we often turn to when explaining this concept of uh, both God's wrath and his goodness uh, is the art of parenting, right? A parent will discipline their child if the child is disobedient. But is the parent not good because of that, right? No, we we wouldn't say that. Maybe if the parent is over-disciplining the child to where it becomes abuse, then that's an issue, but not most of the time, right? The parent disciplines the child because the parent loves the child and wants the best for the child, Though the parent has wrath, if you want to call it that, in that moment, the parent is still good simultaneously at the same time. Now most of us, and here is where we go wrong when we're looking at a passage like this, is that most of us are in a place where we emphasize one over the other. Either we emphasize God's wrath and judgment over his goodness and his love, or we emphasize God's goodness and love over his wrath and judgment. But both of those are wrong. It's wrong to emphasize one over the other because God is both in its fullness and neither aspect of his character negates the other. You see, the whichever one that we emphasize over the other has implications for how we live our lives. If we emphasize God's wrath and his judgment, then we will be very quick to pour out our wrath and judgment on other people. But if we emphasize God's goodness and his love, then we will be too quick to accept the sinful behavior of other people. So I guess my question this morning for you is, well, which, which way do you lean? Which one do you emphasize over the other? Do you lean more towards God's wrath? Or do you lean more towards his goodness? Now, the solution to this problem is not to overcorrect to the complete opposite one. That doesn't solve anything. 
The solution is to hold both of them to be true simultaneously, not negating the other one. Now, that is easier said than done. (laughs) Uh, But this is what is true about God. See, we all love to see God's wrath turned against those who we despise. But when God's wrath turns against us, well, that's when we start to question him, right? Well, why does God have to have wrath? Well, you can't have it both ways, right? God punishes wrongdoing, period. His wrath must be satisfied. And this is why Jesus had to come. This is where this prophet in Nahum connects with the gospel of Jesus. God's wrath was satisfied when Jesus bore the weight of God's wrath on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross is a symbol of God's goodness, but also a symbol of God's wrath. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God undid the thing that caused him to need to be wrathful against his people in the first place. God provided a way out from Adam's original defiance in the garden. And God did that by his own initiative, not by ours. And that's how we know that he is good. So he, in his goodness, provided a way out from his wrath for us. And so when Jesus bore the weight of the sin of the world, past, present, and future on himself, he took the punishment of God's wrath that all of us deserve. And Jesus paid the price for us so that we wouldn't have to. So as people who are in Jesus, we don't have to live in fear of God's wrath anymore. We are set free. We are covered by the blood of Jesus who bore that wrath for us. Now, does this mean that we are free to sin as much as we want? No. This freedom should actually cause us to sin less and not more. Now, if you aren't in Jesus, then God's wrath is something that you have to think about seriously. God in his wrath cannot let your sin against him go unpunished forever. But he has given you a way out. And in his goodness, he so desperately wants you to take it. So if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, don't negate God's wrath or his goodness. Hold the two together. Let them remind you of what God has done for you on the cross. If you aren't a follower of Jesus this morning, 